Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible if you can. We have all of our new Bibles here on site. Um, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we've got Bibles in the racks in front of you. And if you uh, turn to page, let, let's see if this works. So my Bible is supposed to match up with yours. Uh, page 1049, 1049, you, you will find 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 18, and uh, I'm sorry, verses 12 and following. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Did it work? If you got one of those Bibles, let me know if you're on the same page. That, that'll be pretty slick if that works. <clears throat> well, nobody's brave enough to own up to it. Darren, give, give me the thumbs up. Thank you, Darren. Let's read it. We'll pray and we'll get to work. This uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it reads like this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and the way that you speak to us through it. We're praying that you, by your spirit, through that word, would help us to hear your voice today. And I pray, Lord, for my church family, I pray that all of us would be prepared for the fiery ordeals that we will go through as Christians. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to navigate life with a joyful disposition. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us prepare for your return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, three lessons that we find here, three different themes that emerge, and they've been traveling with us throughout this entire letter. We've been looking at the letter of 1 Peter, and uh, we're doing that for, for many reasons, but we believe that uh, Peter writing to the first century church helps us to understand how to live faithfully in hostile times. But we learn about suffering, joy, and judgment in our passage here today. Suffering, we see in verses 12 and following. Suffering uh, is something that is normal in the Christian experience. But then the second lesson that we learn has to do with joy. And we're told that as Christians, we actually ought to rejoice when we suffer for the sake of the name. That there's a way to be joyful even when life looks broken and hard and difficult. And finally, we're mindful of the judgment of God, both the fact that he is currently at work in us, judging us as his community of believers, but then also in the reality that one day he, he will return and make all things new and judge the earth and make things right in that way. So let's get to work. First, we find this idea of suffering. Now, for me personally, um, in young adulthood, it was kind of surprising to me to learn as I began reading the Bible for myself, as I began kind of exploring what the scriptures say, 
and, and just finding over and over again this theme in the scriptures about the people of God suffering and how that's a normal feature in the life of a believer. That was surprising to me. But here we're told this is, this is something that we should not be surprised by as if it's strange, but in fact, this is a part of the very fabric of being faithful to God. So look at verse 12 again. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Friends, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. It's, it's using a word there that's talking about a literal fire and the process of refinement. In fact, if you guys think all the way back to chapter one, what did he say? Your faith, which is of more value, more value than all these precious things like silver and gold, are being refined by fire. And here again, he's reminding us there's this fiery ordeal that is meant to be this refining experience in the life of believers. So think about this. Their uh, refiners would be individuals who would take a piece of of metal, of ore, of the substance, and then they'd plunge it into, let's say, a cauldron of something that's, that's heated, extremely hot. And then the imperfections rise to the surface. And the imperfections then can be skimmed off. And the refiner is doing that to beautify the metal, to beautify the gold or the silver or whatever it is that they're working on. And that experience is, is making that object more and more valuable. Now, as believers in Christ, one of the things that we find is that God is doing that to us, that, he's, that we're going through these fiery ordeals and the imperfections are coming to the surface. And what the Lord is doing is he's skimming those things off that we, we all of a sudden begin to realize, oh, this is in me. This is what's real about me. This is what's going on in my heart. And then all of a sudden we have these opportunities to make fresh applications of the gospel and to be made more and more into the image of Christ himself. There's an illustration that has been shared all over the place by all kinds of preachers. Now, whether or not it's right, I'm not sure, but it is helpful in this way. One of the, thing, one of the stories that I've heard is, is a question being asked to a refiner. When do you know when the metal is done being refined? And the refiner says, when I can see my face reflected in the metal. And that idea is really what we can say about the Christian experience, where, where we're going through these fiery ordeals, and we might say to God, when is it done? When are you finished? And he's saying, when I see my face reflected in you, when I see the image of Christ in you, that's what God is doing with us. And therefore, when we look at the fiery ordeals, we look at them differently. We look at them as uh, this, this tool in the hand of a gracious God where he's making us more like his son. He is refining us, and that is a beautiful thing. He's purifying us and making us ready for his holiness. The second thing that we find, though, is this idea of testing. It's a fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. As though some, It goes on to say, as though something strange were happening to you, but it's a test, meaning it's revealing the true nature of what's going on there. This idea is all over in the Bible when God brings people through difficult circumstances, he says, this is a testing experience. You are finding things out about yourself. So for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the people of God have been wandering around the desert wilderness, and Moses is preaching a sermon to them before they go into the promised land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I believe we'll be able to put it up on the screen, it reads like this. This is Moses speaking to the people. He says, remember 
how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The experience of the trial, the difficulty, the, the suffering was an experience of testing. And what happened was, is people had the opportunity to find out what was really going on in their hearts. They were able to determine the authenticity of the confession that they made of their willingness to follow God. God uses fiery ordeals to test us, to show us what's really happening. And that's a valuable thing because it helps us to know the, the real quality of what it is that we're working with. My wife and I, we've replaced um, almost all the flooring in our home uh, with a vinyl plank. And so this year, I finally got around to doing the stairs. It took me lots of YouTube videos and a lot of many months to gain the confidence to even try it. But we, we replaced the, the, the treads on the stairs. And there's this thing about the product that we bought. It came with a, a bull nose for the very, like the front lip of the step. And it doesn't fasten on there. You have to glue it on. And I thought, uh, I don't love that idea. I don't love the thought of a stair that you're walking up and down on that's attached merely by glue. I know they make all kinds of cool glue, but I'm just not super confident in it. So I, I, you know, I worked on it for a while. I, I nailed it. I did a couple extra things to try to fasten it on there. Um, but I get done with it, and I look at it, and I'm like, man, this is pretty the white face on the stair tread, and then it's got the bull nose on there and the wood on top. And you, you know, that's the kind of thing you like post to Instagram. You're like, look at this, like before and after kind of thing. Now, the problem is, is it's being routinely tested. My office is down there. I'm a big dude. I'm walking down those stairs almost every day, and I'm walking on those, those treads. And a couple of them, through the testing, have revealed they are inadequate. They look great. But the glue, because I was learning as I was going, it needed, I needed a lot more glue. And so a couple of them will actually be replaced. But the thing that, that we learn about testing then is it can look just fine. On the surface, things can look absolutely fine. The testing, however, reveals the, the adhesion. It reveals whether or not that thing is going to perform like it should. The same is true about Christianity. This is a scary, scary thought, but there are a lot of people who confess to be followers of the Lord. They confess to be following God and willing to do what he, they confess to his lordship. They confess to all these different things. Trials, however, reveal the true nature of somebody's faith. And there's a category in the Bible, and I wish it weren't in there, but there's a category of people in the Bible, like, for instance, Matthew chapter 7. There are, there are people who, when the Lord returns, they will say to him, how's it going? And he'll say, I don't know you. And they'll be absolutely surprised by that. In fact, they'll appeal to him and they'll say, listen, what about all the things that I've done in your name? What about the ministry that I've performed? What about all these incredible things? And he'll say, I never knew you. It's a scary thing to, to think that there are some people who call themselves followers of Christ They've never been tested, so they assume that that faith is real and sincere and authentic, but the reality is otherwise. The testing reveals whether or not we are truly adhering to Christ, whether or not we are truly trusting in him and in his work for us. 
Sometimes the trials are there for that very purpose. There are people um, that come to my mind as, as we go through a text like this, and I know what they're going through right now is a, is a refining experience and a testing experience. And what God wants to do is he wants to t- take them deeper. He wants to show them what true faith would really entail. And that, my friends, it's actually a grace of God. It's a grace of God that he would reveal those sorts of things to us to help us confess and believe in new and fresh ways, to apply the gospel in real ways to our own hearts. So the fiery ordeal is, is an instrument that God is using to, to beautify us, to purify us, to refine us and make us fit for the holiness of God. It's an experience of testing that God is revealing the true nature of our souls. And, and when we do this, we're, we're actually participating in, in the, the thing that our Lord went through. Look at verse 13. Rejoice in so much in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You, you, are, you are joining your, your suffering Savior. You are experiencing something that it gives you solidarity with the Lord himself. So what are we told to do then in this first lesson? Do not be surprised. This is not a strange thing. This is not an odd thing. This is a part of the normal experience of a faithful follower of God. So around here, we talk about the importance of having a theology of suffering that's ready for this. There will, there will be days that come where you will experience fiery ordeals, and you need to be mindful of these things. God can use it to purify you. He can use it to test you, and you get to share in the sufferings of Christ in a way that is beautiful and helpful. Well, the second thing, and this one might be even more surprising, it's the idea that when you suffer, the Christian is actually supposed to be joyful. The Christian has a resource available to them to take what feels awful and horrible, and they actually transform it into an occasion for worship. Look at verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Christians are supposed to be rejoicing through their trials. Um, so this morning I woke up irritable and my wife is working today. So it's on me to get my kids corralled and here and then to try to do double duty of being a good daddy and a faithful pastor and all these things. And things were not going my way this morning. And so I show up and I'm just a little off and I'm a little bit irritable and I'm reminded. So there's a teaching in in Philippians uh, chapter two, where Paul says, do everything without complaining or grumbling. I'm like, hmm, wouldn't that be nice, right? Like, because gr- my soul is very grumbly today. Uh, but then it says, but if you do that, you'll be like children of God and you will shine. You'll, you'll shine the beauty of uh, who God is in this world. And so, you know, I'm reminded of that. Okay, I, I need to stop grumbling. I need to stop complaining. And, but, but here's what's crazy. Peter says, look, Christianity is not just the absence of grumbling, it's the presence of joy. It's not just that we stop ourselves from grumbling and complaining and doing these different things. We actually should be the kind of people who are rejoicing because we understand how God is at work even in the midst of our trials. We rejoice in as much as we participate in the sufferings of Christ. We, we recognize that what we're going through is something that God is using for our good, that he's making us more like Christ. And we, we are joyful because we are sharing in this incredible 
ministry that the Lord himself performed, his willingness to suffer and die for us. So this is a real thing. Uh, It has actually happened before. You might be thinking, wow, that sounds uh, too good to be true. But in Acts chapter 5, the the apostles were arrested for their faith, and they were, um, you know, arrested and beaten, told not to preach in the name of Christ, and then they were released. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were rejoicing because they went through a situation where they began to realize, we're like him. We went through something incredibly hard, and they're not minimizing the suffering or the beating or anything like that, but they're saying, we, we have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. That's a beautiful thing. So, verse 13 tells us we should be filled with joy, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You will be overjoyed when, you, when his glory is revealed. It's this thing that we've been reminding ourselves of week by week. It's the fact that uh, there's a paradigm in the gospel that says suffering first, but glory is coming. We go through life in a broken and fallen world, and we are broken and fallen people, and it's hard and it's painful, but one day glory will occur, Jesus will return, and it will be magnificent. Glory is coming. So we will be overjoyed when that glory is revealed. We look to the future and we remind ourselves of the the perfect work, work of Christ and what he's going to accomplish at his return and how he's going to make all things new, including us. And we then can be overjoyed at, even at that thought, but we look forward to that day. And, and actually, a part of what we need to do then is we import that to today. And we actually base our lives on the fact that that's going to come true. That's going to happen. So right now, today, I'm going to live in light of that day. I'm going to live uh, banking off of those resources. Now, there was a, a martyr named John Bradford in, in the 1550s, a follower of Christ who was arrested and executed for his faith. And he had a young associate. I think that the young man was something like 19 years old, and he was scared. His, his name was um, John Leaf. Uh, so you got John Bradford and John Leaf, and they're associates together, and they're both going to be um, executed for their faith. And John Bradford looks at his young associate, and he says to him, Be of good cheer, young man, for we shall have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. Be of good cheer, young man, because today, tonight, we're going to dine with our Lord. And he, what he's doing then is exactly what we're talking about here. He's rejoicing even in the midst of his suffering. He's rejoicing by taking hold of that future that is his, the faith that he's, that he's banking on the Lord's work in his heart and in his life and, and the glory that will be his. And he's applying it to that moment. And then, in fact, you can read about this in in Fox's book of martyrs, but they actually prayed and they rejoiced even while they were were executed. So Christians are the kind of people who are weird, right? They go through difficult things, but their inner disposition is one of rejoicing and joy. Because it goes on to say in verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's this reality of blessing that we have because we have the Spirit of God. I was reminded of this as I was sitting with the the kids' church team, and we just kind of confessed, we don't just do this. Like, we we don't just make this happen. 
this is a work of the Spirit. That when we go through difficult things, God helps us to be joyful. But it's because of His Spirit residing on us, resting on us. But then He goes on to say, okay, in case we mess this thing up, I want you to understand, not all suffering is worthy of rejoicing in. Some of the suffering that we go through is actually our own fault. In fact, look at verse 15. He says, listen, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So if you make poor choices and you think, oh, I'm just going to steal stuff or I'm going to kill somebody or I'm going to be a criminal in any sort of fashion, and and you suffer on account of it, whether you get caught for it or whether people do not trust you because you seem like a shady individual, you don't rejoice in that suffering. That's your own making. So life might be hard, but that might be your own fault. He's saying, look, that's not something to celebrate. Some of the choices that you make and, and the consequences from them, that is your own doing. You don't get to rejoice in those sorts of things. We should be the kind of people who, if we suffer, it is on account of our faithfulness to Christ. And in fact, he says, he throws in this interesting thing at the end, because some of you might be going, well, that's great, because I don't have a problem with killing other people or stealing stuff or being a criminal. That's just not not who I am. But then he throws in this catch-all thing at the end, and I wish it weren't there, but it is. He says, or even as a meddler. You go, what does that mean? Well, it's an interesting word, because it only shows up this one time in the New Testament. But if you look at how it's used in the first century, it's, it basically means just kind of being a troublemaker. Or like Tom Schreiner says, it's just, it's basically being annoying. Like he's saying, don't be annoying. Like some suffering, including the way that Christians interface with the world, sometimes it's, they suffer and it's their own fault. It's because they're irritating, right? They, they're the kind of people that go to work and then people see them and they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to this person because they're annoying, right? Or they're, they're irritating to us. Christians, do not rejoice in that suffering. In fact, you should be wise and tactful in your relationships and people should be drawn to you because of the beauty of the way that you relate to other people. Don't, don't rejoice in suffering if you're annoying. Instead, rejoice because of your faithfulness to Christ. Let's look at verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you suffer as a Christian, and it's this interesting phrase that's being used there because they didn't call people Christians in the first century. This was more of a derogatory thing of saying, oh, they must be one of them, one of those people, the followers of Christ, a Christian. He says, look, if people look at you for that reason, rejoice. Praise God that you bear that name. Now, here's how I think that plays out today. I think that true Christianity defies categories. And I think that there's this derogatory posture toward people who are going to say, I'm going to follow the Lord and what he wants me to do. And that puts you out of step with everybody other than other faithful followers of the Lord. And then people begin to look at you and go, oh, you don't fit my categories. You don't, fill, you don't fit my political ideas. You don't fit the way that I think that people ought to behave in this world you're one of them. You're one of them. You're one of those people. And and Peter says, listen, if that happens, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Praise God. Praise God that you bear that name, that you look like your Lord and Savior, and people don't know what to do about that, but it irritates them. 
You look like your Lord and Savior, and that, that provokes hostility in them. Rejoice about that. Christians, let's be a strange people. Let's be people who don't fit any of the current categories that people are using to talk about politics or worldview or any of those different things. Let's not be the annoying Christians that are going around, you know, just sharing our opinions and, and blasting people who don't agree with us. Let's live beautifully for the sake of the name. Well, the third thing that we find here in verses 17 to 19 is a lesson about God's judgment. And what we find out is that God is going to return, the Lord is going to return, and he's going to judge the earth. But in the meantime, there's already some judgment that's going on. It's the judgment that begins with the followers of the Lord. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. What he's saying is, he's, he's alluding to some Old Testament passages, and Malachi chapter 3 is the one that's clearest, but he's alluding to some different ideas there where... Um, in Malachi chapter 3, there was a prophet, and God was saying, I'm going to send somebody, and they're going to begin refining the household of God. They're going to begin taking out all the things that are impure and making the temple suitable for the holiness of God, making the, the temple fit for, for the appropriate worship of a holy God. And what Peter's saying here is, that's going on right now. What God is up to right now is he is judging us, his household. Remember, he says, you guys, you are these spiritual rocks that are being built together into the house where God will, will dwell. What is God doing today? Judging us. What does that mean? It means that he's preparing us. He's refining us. He's making us fit for his glory. He's making us suitable for his holiness. We, we are the household of God, and God is currently judging us. That's what, that's what he's up to. He's, he's revealing things about his bride, the church, that's, a, that's basically saying these are the things that cannot remain. These things need to be removed from my household so that the glory might overwhelm that house. God is judging us. That's the thing that we have to embrace right now. That's a good thing. If God is refining his people and he's showing our in, inadequacies, then he's also giving us the grace to trust him and to find the cleansing work that he is performing for us. So it starts with us. The problem that we have right now is a lot of Christians are, are eager for the judgment of the world. And we flip this around exactly. And the difficulties that are going on in our society right now, we use them as an occasion to condemn the world. The problem is that's exactly backwards. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 5, 6, and 7 say as much. It says, look, what do you expect from an unbelieving world? Judgment comes, first of all, to God's people. That's where it begins. So if you're looking at the world and you're saying, hey, you're not living how God wants you to, well, there's no surprise there. There's no commitment to that sort of thing. But Christians, we need to recognize God is judging us right now. How are we responding to the world? How are we interfacing with a world that does not know of God and does not commit to following him? And, and what, what God is doing is he wants us to be a people who so reflect the image of Christ that the beauty and the majesty of Christ are on display. But if judgment begins with us, it doesn't end with us. Those who are not following God will have to give an account. Look at verse 17. If it begins with us, what will, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's saying, look, we're, we're being currently judged, but God one day will return 
and he will make all things right. And those that do not obey the gospel will have to give an account for that. But you, in the meantime, need to be faithful to the process. Because what's implied here is that when you're suffering, you can begin to doubt whether or not it's worth it. And you can begin to think, well, if I just give up on being a Christian, maybe I could just go back to living however I want, and it would be better. I mean, look at some of these unbelievers and the glory of their lives. But it's saying, don't give up on God's redemptive plan. He is judging us right now. One day he will judge the entire world. Be faithful in the meantime. Verse 18, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved. What he's talking about there is the difficulty of the trial by fire. And he's saying, look, if that's what happens to those who are being saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If you're being currently judged, then imagine what it's going to be like on the day that the Lord returns. So what should we do? Entrust ourselves to God. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Trust that God is your maker and that he is caring for you, that he is overseeing your life, he's superintending your life, and commit yourself to him. Commit yourself to your faithful creator and persist in doing what you know to be right. Do what is good. So as we wrap this thing up then, here's what we found. Suffering is a normal experience for faithful Christians. The fiery trials are things that God is using to beautify us, to to purify us, to make us more fit for the holiness of God himself. When we go through trials because of our faithfulness to Christ, we have We have this um, camaraderie with the Lord himself, the suffering Messiah. We know that in all of this, we should be rejoicing then, that we should be joyful that God is working in us on our behalf for our good, and one day we will experience the glory that will follow. We know that judgment is happening right now, that God is making us ready for his glory, and we know that one day he will come and make all things right. So let's be faithful in the meantime and commit ourselves to him and do good for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we admit the weirdness of these sorts of teachings. They, they feel off. But you say here, this is not strange. So Lord, we celebrate the fact that you remind us of this reality of suffering as believers for your glory. I pray, Lord, for my church family, and I ask that you would help each and every one of us to embrace this teaching and that we would be able to go through life rejoicing, overjoyed at the glory that will be revealed in us. Help us to acknowledge the judgment that's presently happening, the fact that you're at work on us, Lord, and and let us be okay with that because we know that you are working to make us ready for your return. And we know that when that happens, it will be beautiful and glorious. So help us in the meantime to be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.